So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. You can do this at, you don't have to be extremely wealthy to play in the art world. You don't even have to be wealthy. There are very, very well-known and highly respected collectors who just did the work to go out there and find artists who they, they really liked early in their careers and bought a lot of art. And over time, some of them hit. And when they hit, they really hit. We, you know, you read the Financial Times and you read the results from the auctions. Every time a painting sells for five or 10 or $50 million, somewhere in history, someone bought that painting for a couple hundred or a couple Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Mike Steib. Mike, thanks for doing this. Hey, Jess, thanks for having me. I'm a fan of you and the podcast. I've been looking forward to this. So I, you know, as we talked about before the show started, I'm originally, you know, I took the very traditional route to investment banking <laughs> as an art school dropout, right? But, you know, my inner artist, I, I, I am interested in, in things that develop in that world. And I have been watching your site and seeing what you guys are doing and was really excited when we had the chance to have you on the show. But for people who don't know about artsy.net, can you give people the overview? Sure. So Jess, we are, we're on a mission to make the art world more welcoming and, and bring many more people into the art world by aggregating all of the art that you can buy, making it easy to discover the art that you're going to love, and then offering a, a no friction, no hassle, end-to-end transaction to our, to our users. The way that we do that is we've we've brought together over 3,000 of the world's leading galleries from over 100 countries who represent more than 100,000 of the most in-demand artists in the world. We are the number one place you can find artists from Andy Warhol and Banksy all the way down to your favorite local artist represented at your favorite local gallery. We work with those galleries as well as auction houses, and we work with we work with collectors directly, all of whom may want to sell, all of whom look to sell their works on Artsy. So you download our app, tell us a little bit about who you collect or what artists you're interested in or what kind of art you're interested in, and we can you can enjoy that art endlessly in our feed, and eventually you'll find the thing that you're looking for, and God willing, you'll click a button, buy it, and become a patron of the arts. <laughs> Well, uh, congratulations on the success. You know, I've heard you had, you know, million dollar sales of works, David Hockney and, and others, e-commerce sales up 170%, new buyers grew by 40%, users grew by 2 million, millennial buyers doubled. Like these are great stats, especially during COVID. Yeah, we well, look, the last year has been a really important year for the art world. It was estimated back in March or April that 70% of galleries were at risk of going out of business. And these are, these are, hardworking business owners who love art, love the craft, and who are out there, you know, working seven days a week to make sure that their artists can eat. And that the art world was facing this kind of, this kind of a crisis was, you know, was a crisis for Artsy as well. And I'm really, I'm really proud of the team. We, we pulled together over the last year, offered a bunch of new, new tools and resources, gallery partners in particular, by growing the number of collectors, the number of inquiries, and the number of purchases on Artsy significantly year over year. So while the physical world was, you know, was, was, was unavailable for much of the last year for our gallery partners and their artists, we ensured that the, that, that, that the art world kept going in the, in the digital, in the digital world. Well, you know, what's interesting to me is, you know, I, I love kind of my, you know, traveling around the world in the investment business, you get a lot of, a lot of air miles doing that. Right. And very often I'm like, well, if I'm going to go all the way there and take time away from family and kids, like 
I'm going to have, you know, a breakfast meeting, a mid-morning meeting, a lunch, a couple afternoon meetings, a dinner, and possibly an after-dinner meeting. And I'm going to get, you know, my wife used to think that I went on all these vacations to all these different great sounding cities. And then she's like, she comes with me and she's like, oh, that's super tiring. That's not a vacation, right? But my one thing was whatever city I got to go to, I'm always finding whatever the best gallery or museum is. And that's like my one, like I do carve out time to go see whatever the best gallery or museum in that city is, you know? The tough thing though is it's not always the most accessible environment. You know, we, we talked a lot about this a little before the show started and, you know, gallery hours are not like a mall. <laughs> like a lot of times when I had time to get to certain galleries, they're not open. Right. And, and in general, it can feel like an exclusive thing. You know, if you don't already know people in that space, you're not exactly sure how to, how to be, where to get in, what parties are happening. And, and so it can be intimidating. And it seems like you've, you've really address a number of those issues with this. Just you've hit the you've hit the thesis on the head. If you you look at the global market, there are 17 million high net worth individuals, people who clearly have enough money to buy art, people who who have 50 trillion dollars of of wealth in one form or another, who buy cars and furs and handbags and countless other mass-produced depreciating assets as brand signals, if you would. Those same dollars could be going into the art world to support the work of a hardworking artist who, you know, who often, often these artists need the paycheck. 95% of working artists earn below the poverty line with their work. And when you, instead of buying a car or a or a handbag. When you buy when you buy art, you're you're directly contributing to the the life and the livelihood of a working artist and of the gallery who supports her. And it is it brings beauty into your home. It gives you an asset that can actually appreciate quite substantially if you just a little bit know what you're doing. And it's a nice thing to do for the world. So what we've tried to do with Artsy by getting all of the art into one place, by bringing transparency to things like prices, which as you know, Jess, walking into galleries and art fairs, generally speaking, they won't tell you how much the thing costs until you you know, inquire really seriously. We bring price transparency so that you don't have that awkward feeling of asking if you can buy something that you can't, turns out, buy. Nobody wants to experience that emotion. And then finally, you know, you and I, we we both know the residual value on a Mercedes GLS 450. Everyone knows that if you buy a certain handbag, you've bought a cool handbag. Not everyone has access to that insight and art. And we've worked really hard at Artsy to productize that data and those signals so that you can come to Artsy and not only see that we have Kahindi Wiley for sale, but you can see that we, you can see all of the transactions of Kahindi Wiley works in public auctions over the last two years and develop a sense of comfort with where the market for that work sits today. And in addition, we tell you what gallery represents them, whether museums have have bought in those, those works, et cetera. All of those quality signals in the art world that give you not just comfort in the transaction, but like excitement, endorphins for the purchase that you're about to make. So I'm so glad that you brought him up because I think he might, he might be my very favorite artist on your entire platform. To me, like the, like, you know, we've all got our different artistic tastes. And if you go to art school, you get even more picky, right? About, you, you get even more opinionated, right? And and there's a lot of modern art that I, I don't identify as with as much. And to me, I love like the Salvador Dali, like high aesthetic value, but something completely not seen before, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I just feel like he's like, he's such an incredible remix artist. of like such high aesthetic value but with a novelty factor. And for people who don't know, I mean, how would you describe his work for people not familiar with him? It's portraiture that's done in a way that you've never you've never seen before. Andy Wiley's mo- most famous for having done President Obama's portrait as he left office. His work's incredible. And we have Gehindi Wiley, we have, we have works by countless artists of the African diaspora. And if you like black figurative paintings, we have a, we have an we have the widest variety and and, and just volume of, of works that you're gonna find anywhere. And the thing, Jess, is you, you love Gandhi Wiley, someone else may or may not, but there's art out there for everyone. And what's so hard in the physical world is to go walk to some place in the physical world, go to a gallery, to another gallery, to another gallery, to an art fair where you go booth to booth. You just, it's physically impossible for you to see the full breadth of what's out there. And, you know, I can take you on a journey from black and white wildlife photography to black figurative paintings to 
abstract expressionalism to prints and multiples to the largest selection of Warhols or cause available anywhere in the world, all in one place. And, and we're able to use a combination of curation and algorithms to connect you to the stuff that we think you're going to really love. It's a joyful experience. It's, it's you know, it's, especially since I've been at Artsy, I find flipping through to be a much more nourishing way to spend my phone time than looking at Instagram or something else. And if you're not careful, which I'm not, you end up buying a lot of art, which is, which is <laughs> I have to tell you, which is really, really, really fun. You know, it's funny that you put, you, you used Warhol and cause in the same sentence there. You know, I'm, and for people who aren't familiar, it's K-A-W-S. I, you know, I've been following his Instagram this year and it's interesting to me. I don't know if he did this intentionally, but it does feel like lessons from Warhol. The way he has used repetition and variation to really become recognizable I mean, like some of my best friends are kids I went to art school with 20 years ago, right? And some of them are actually clients of our consulting firm because they couldn't make it as a fine artist. And so they became a marketing firm so they could still kind of do art and make money, right? But, you know, it is interesting, the business of like, really, you know, kind of comes from a bit more of my like, you know, as a kid, I was I was a snowboarder skater, right? And, and that kind of more street art type of feel, but to really like figure out how to play the game and be accepted by the more sophisticated art world has, I mean, it's, it's fascinating from a, a career strategy point for artists who are so often told as a kid, don't be an artist. You'll never make any money. You'll never be able to feed your family. Like all the kind of things that I got told when I told people I wanted to be an artist, you know? Well, that's look, it's certainly what we're trying to fix. I want to, I want to live in a world someday soon where when a kid tells their parents, they want to grow up to be an artist, the parents say, good, there's, there's good money in that. Like, and it, and if we are able to successfully open up the art world to all of the people who could be buying art today who don't, then the art world becomes much, much larger than it is today. The, there's currently, to, to this year, there will be 50 some billion dollars spent on art. Half of that on new original works of art and half of that on art that was already sold and is now trading in the secondary market. Contrast that to a trillion and a half dollars that'll be spent on luxury fashion and jewelry. Uh, half a trillion dollars that'll be spent on luxury autos. And those are, as I said before, sort of mass-produced depreciating assets that given enough, you know, given enough number of years will be worth zero at the end of the curve. Whereas if you're investing in art, you're actually investing. You're investing in an asset that can be worth more money to you in the future. You're investing in something that's going to hang in your home and just bring warmth and, and love and wonder into your life. And you're investing in the career and the livelihood of an artist, which is it's, it's a really special way to, I mean, if you're going to go on, you're going to download an app to buy something and you want to feel really good about it, download an app and buy art. It's it's really, it's something special. You know, it, it is interesting because like, you know, ca cars are a guilty pleasure of mine. I, I like going fast. Okay. And in general, my cars are worth much, much less at, at the time that I part with them than when I acquired them, right? And yet, knowing what you're doing, this is what I appreciate about some of the education you guys are doing is done correctly, it can be the opposite. You know, we, we obviously have some some clients who are billionaires and folks and, and other people from that category that have supported our charity, Child Rescue and stuff. And, you know, when they get invited to buy one of the original Porsche 917s, right? That car is worth an extra million. He's been driving it and it's worth an extra million dollars, right? But but there's, but you got to play the game right because the vast majority of automobile acquisitions are depreciating assets, like you said. And in art, like you think about people who, because it can be an opaque market, because there isn't pricing transparency, because of all those things you brought up, it's not, it's not easy to get good at looking at art from a asset standpoint instead of just a pretty standpoint, you know? So I appreciate the, mm -hmm. you know, I appreciate the education you're bringing to it. Can you talk a little bit more about just for people who don't know, I, if, if I'm looking at art that's expensive enough, it starts to feel more like an investment than just a wall covering, right? Why does it matter if it's in a gallery? What are some of the indicators that can help me realize, no, this, this is a asset is likely to appreciate versus not? Just at a, at a high level, there are 3 million working artists in the world today. 300,000 of those artists have achieved gallery representation. That means that a, that a gallery has brought you onto their platform and they're going to use their real estate, their network, and their influence to grow your career and get collectors in the door to buy your works. So they're going to put on shows for you, et cetera. 
So right out of the gate, 90% of artists don't make it to that level. And if you go to a local art fair or you buy a piece of art in a charity auction or you, you, you go on a cruise and you come home with a piece of art, it's very likely you've bought something from one of the artists who don't have gallery representation. Of the 300,000 artists who have gallery representation, today only a little over 3,000 of them have a liquid secondary market. The other 297,000 that you're buying may develop a secondary market. But today, when you buy it, there's no opportunity for you to turn around five years from now. You don't know that in five years you'll be able to turn around and sell it because the market for that artist hasn't yet developed. Now, if you love a piece of art, if you really love a piece of art, I believe you should you should do whatever it takes to acquire it. Whether it's gallery rep- whether she is gallery represented as an artist, whether that artist has a secondary market, finding art that you love that really speaks to you is irreplaceable. And so anyone could buy anyone. I, I encourage people just to buy art. But if you're someone who thinks I want to buy art, and there's actually a lot of stuff that I like that I would really love to have in my life, help guide me toward the one that that's going to appreciate rather than depreciate. You look for signals like whether they're represented by galleries who represent other artists who've developed secondary markets. For artists that have secondary markets, you look at their recent transactions. And if you see that the art has consistently been, quote, bought in, it means it was brought to auction but didn't sell or didn't sell above the reserve price. And you can see all this data and information in the Artsy app if you download it. You'll see for any artist who has a secondary market, all of those transactions. You'll see the gallery representation. You also look for signals like, has this artist had solo shows? What art fairs does this artist show at? Freeze and Art Basel are two examples of the premier art fairs that tend to be career makers for artists. You'll want to know what museums have this artist in their collection. And when museums start buying artists, bringing artists into their collection, it's a next level for that artist. And and you can do this at, you don't have to be extremely wealthy to play in the art world. You don't even have to be wealthy. There are very, very well-known and highly respected collectors who just did the work to go out there and find artists who they, they really liked early in their careers and bought a lot of art. And over time, some of them hit. And when they hit, they really hit. And we, you know, you read the Financial Times and you read the results from the auctions. Every time a painting sells for five or 10 or $50 million, somewhere in history, someone bought that painting for a couple hundred or a couple thousand dollars. Yeah. Like, listen, I, I appreciate when I was in high school and college and I was in little art fairs and somebody would buy my, you know, I remember being a 16 year old kid and selling a painting for 250 bucks. It was amazing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, and it was a woman who just liked it. She, I don't think she really thought it was going to appreciate. So like, I, I appreciate that aspect of the market. And, you know, I, like, I personally have a lot of interest in the kind of, a lot of the kind of artists that are in like juxtapose or high fructose magazine, you know, right. That's where a lot of my, my interest goes, but, but this idea of looking at it and, and obviously it's, you know, it's not like buying an income producing asset where it can be valued on a discounted cash flow, right? Like what Warren Buffett would buy. But when you look at when you look at the idea of probabilities, right, for an investment standpoint, all all those indicators that you said indicate that the probabilities are in favor of increasing in value. And it's not like, again, it's not like buying a commercial real estate building where we can have a, you know, maybe a tighter range of an estimation of what that value is likely to increase to. But this idea of like, you can have something that genuinely brings joy to your life. And I get biased because... I can go to galleries and I can just sit and stare at the same painting for a really long time when it's a really great one. But that idea of like, you can do something like that, that has a high probability of not just maintaining value, but increasing value. It is interesting how attached we can become to great art that we see every day in our homes, isn't it? Absolutely. Look, Jess, I think thematic to your podcast is this question of what are extremely successful people doing that I, as the listener, am not doing. And as a general rule, if someone is really rich, they've got a ton of art. And in fact, I I, I challenge someone to name a really successful person who does not have a ton of art. It's, 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 it's the folks who are on their way up who are, or who have reached sort of a first level of success who haven't yet developed that comfort in the art world who don't. And what anyone who now owns a lot of art will tell you is you only regret the art that you didn't buy. They all know of this time earlier in their careers and earlier in their lives where they weren't buying the art and they saw the opportunity and it passed. And now they know what that art and what those artists are worth. So I would say for your listeners, download the app, give it a try, but I'm easy to find on social media as well. And if someone wants to get started in the art world and wants some advice, just 
direct message me and we have folks at work who can help you. I will help get you started because once you get started, it's just a blast. It's really wonderful. And you it, it brings you into the art world, someplace that I have to tell you, I, I, I've never had more fun sort of at, at, at the intersection of work and work and life as I'm having in this, as I'm having here in the art world. Well, it's funny because in general, I'm such a non-speculator. I'm, I'm so in favor of compound interest investing instead, right? But there are those opportunities where you see and you're like, man, even though this is not valuing it on a cash flow stream, the probabilities of increase are so likely, it doesn't feel like the gambling end of, of speculation. You know, like I live, I live southeast of Park City and on one side of the valley from here, lots are going for like $250,000 for a quarter acre. And on the other side, there's an area right on the side of the mountain where you could buy acre, acre size lots for like 25 and 35 grand. And I sat there staring at them going like, I should really get, I should really pick some of those up. We should really, we should really get some of this. And, yeah. and sure enough, I didn't. And sure enough, they tripled last year, you know? And it's like, it's not really gambling when you have enough other data to indicate probabilities, you know? This, this valley, for instance, is hemmed in by mountains on three sides. And so there, you know, when there is a limited, I mean, it's like buying a Rembrandt, they're not making any more of them. Do you know what I mean? And uh, yeah, of course, and, and look, just, and you're, you're right. I mean, there is not, there is no intrinsic value to a Rembrandt. It does not, it does not pay cash dividends on, on a quarterly basis, but I, even like neither does gold. And as an asset class, gold is held up pretty well for, I don't know, a handful of millennia. <laughs> It's like gold's doing okay. And you know, rare antique baseball cards and collectibles and the you know books that were owned by Albert Einstein. And this is not a new idea that something is going to be worth what someone else in the future will view it to be worth. It's worth and what is it worth? Like, what does it feel like to you to have it? So imagine a world where you buy a five or ten thousand dollar painting that you just love. It turns out you bought the wrong, quote unquote, wrong one. And 50 years from now, it did not develop the second secondary market the way that you hoped it would. You spent 50 years with a painting that you love. Like divide the cost of that painting over the 50 years of your life during which you had it. Not a terrible investment. And think about all of the things that you will have spent discretionary income on over those 50 years that never had a chance of having residual value. And I'd say arts, art chess is a it's a it's a fun place to it's a fun place to play. Well and th this goes back to my appreciation of you guys and, and what you've done with the education side because you know, historically over the long term, gold has done well, but verifying the purity of the gold you're buying is probably a good idea before you buy it, right? And that's why verifying and, and being educated about the art that you're going to buy for, the art that you're going to buy that's going to be an asset, that's going to be a financial asset yeah. of your family, potentially multi-generational asset, right? Verifying up front, being educated. I mean, Warren Buffett constantly says that risk comes from not knowing what you're doing and, and, and trying to do things that are outside your circle of competence. And I love that you bring up that things can be started small. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to jump straight for the top. You know, you can, you can start small, learn, you know, level up, learn, level up, learn, level up, learn. And I think one of the things, and again, I know I'm totally biased, but as opposed to, as opposed to raw land somewhere you're never going to see like land banking or something, this has such an emotional value. Like I would love, you know, I've been trying to turn my kid, I got four kids. I've been trying to turn them into artists ever since they've been born. I would love if they were walking past, I don't care if it's the cheapest Rembrandt on earth. I would love if they were walking past some, some really inspiring artist. And that's something that they had seen in our home all their growing up years. Anyways, but again, I know it, I'm biased. It is, look, there's... Uh... At Artsy, you've mentioned we we have this education. We we do it in a few different ways. One is we have an we have an editorial team that's writing about artists and galleries in the art market every day. So for folks who either are in the art world and just enjoy learning more every day, we're a great resource. And for folks who are newer to the art world, it's a it's a really nice place to start. Secondly, we have productized all of the secret data signals that have that have been in the background of the art world that have been available to the elites but not available to just anyone else. And so if you're interested in any of the artists we talked about today or any of 100,000 other artists who are available and in demand and on Artsy, You'll see everything from their secondary market trades to the gallery that represents them to the 
to the museums that have bought them and all that really cool stuff. You'll also see connections among artists. So you may find an artist who you really like, who you can't be, a, you, maybe it's just not in your price range or maybe it's not available because some of the hottest artists, you have to get in line. They're, they're, their works were sold before you even knew it was there. And we'll tell you 10 other artists who are, who are like this one, who come from a similar school, whose styles are similar, who are at a similar place in their career trajectory. And you can you can fall in love with one piece of one artist's work, and then you might find that there's another artist you you love just as much. So it's all it, it's it's all there for someone uh, who wants to enjoy art and maybe wants to step into the art world and and start to transact. It's a it's a really great way to get started. Well, maybe taking a slight shift, I'm fascinated with you know, a world that people don't necessarily think about being tech enabled, right? Mm -hmm. And just this, I'm interested in some of your business philosophies. You know, you think about both uh, transparency on data and just availability and access, right? I mean, you have, you've done, you know, the word disruption is massively overused in all things entrepreneurship, but you've done something drastically different that uh, you're not one of 50 people doing something like this. You know what I mean? Can you talk about some of the mentality of, of bringing, you know, bringing a traditionally non-tech-based industry to the tech world? Sure. And Jess, I've, I've, had the, I've had the good fortune to do this in a number of different industries. I've uh, in financial services, in media, in healthcare, uh, in retail. And in my last job, we actually digitized the wedding, the wedding planning and event planning process. One of the things that happens in any industry is, you know, when it starts off, there's this relentless search for the problem that the user has, that the customer has that you can solve. And then you hit on something and your company starts to grow and then it gets competitors. And then it's not just a company, it's an industry. And then the industry becomes about maximizing revenue and then maximizing profit. And you can lose that original, you lose that original kernel of what made for a great product and a great business, which is what is that, what's that problem that you uniquely can solve? And so if we look at the, if we look at the art world, there's so much wonderful about the art world, but that you have to literally physically walk gallery to gallery or art, you know, walk around the art fairs, that you can't see the prices of the works, that you don't know the availability. That's a real user problem. Or you think about the problem on the sales side. If you sell a painting through an auction house today, it generally takes six months. It's a highly analog process. And it's one where the commissions that you pay to the that, that you pay to sell them are are very high because the cost base in an analog world is so high. So if you if you step back from that and say, and I had the I had the you know uh, the luxury of being new to the space, and you say, well, why does it work that way for someone who wants to collect art? I'd like it to work like this. And you go build a product that works that way. It really resonates with people. It really resonates with people. So now you can find all the art in one place, and you can buy it at the click of a button, and you can have all the data. So to us. That's how I, you know, for me and for, for the team, that's how we wanted to see the art world work for ourselves. And we built that product and it turns out that it resonates for others. On the sales side, if you have a painting, you know, you inherited a painting from your parents and maybe you just don't love it, but you're kind of stuck with it. You don't know what to do with it. You take a picture of it with your phone, upload it through the Artsy app. In 72 hours, we will have an offer for you. And when it sells through, you know, through the Artsy marketplace, you get the check ship it off and we're done. Like we, we just, we took the friction out of it. Like if I was going to be the customer, how would I want it to work? Let's make it work that way. That's, I think that is the essence of how every great business starts. I think about Uber. Before Uber, you stood in the rain and waved your hand at cars passing you, hoping one would pick you up. Now that Uber exists, that's absurd. Even imagining hailing a taxi in the rain is an absurd thought. And so, you know, the goal, I think, of any entrepreneur or any technology business leader, I think any good business, any good leader who loves building products that will delight people. The end state is when this thing really clicks, when this thing scales, the way the world used to work, which everyone assumed was how it's supposed to go, will in hindsight be intolerable. <laughs> well, I'm interested. You know, you've had such an interesting background. McKinsey, Walker Digital, NBC, you know, managing director of emerging platforms at Google, you know, board, board of directors over at Ally Financial and published author. Congratulations on that. I'm interested Thank in you. how you think this diverse background prepared you for what you've accomplished now. I think if your intent, if, if your intent is to help transform industries or transform businesses, I, I think it is a like it's a disadvantage to not know the industry. I'm, I, I said in a, a countless number of stupid things in my first six months in any job I've stepped into, just because you don't have the context of everyone who's done it for a long time. 
And fortunately, I've, I've worked with a lot of people who were patient with my first six or 12 months. But once you get up the learning curve on sort of uh, on the facts of the industry, you're able to look at it with a fresh set of eyes and apply patterns that you've seen in other businesses or under other industries where it's worked. So my last job was, boy, we the, the company was called XO Group and our leading property was called The Knot. It, it was when I took over the, the company, it was an online wedding magazine. You go there and read articles about like how to book a DJ or a venue. And so we took this like, you know, I just got here kind of naive look at the business and said, well, do you really want to read an article about how to book a DJ or do you want to book a DJ? And why do, can't we just build software that gives you all the DJs in your market in one place and all the venues and all the photographers and all the jewelers and all the things that you need to throw a wedding? And we'll give you software that walks you through the steps that you have to go through to plan a wedding because it's kind of complicated and we'll make it simple. And then you click a button to contact this venue or this DJ or whoever and, and book them for your wedding. And so that has nothing to do with art. And yet, in a way, it has everything to do with my current job because it's about using software and data and editorial and curation and combining them into an elegant experience where you take the friction out. And you replace all of the hard parts of that, what that industry had done. And you, you just leave the human parts that people really enjoy. Art collecting is amazing. Sending a wire transfer to a gallery in Ghana and managing the shipping is terrible. So I'm going to make the wire transfer <laughs> and the shipping part invisible. You click a button in my app and good things happen. And then you can just enjoy the art collecting. The feeling of asking someone, hey, how much for this painting? And then being told that it's a number that makes you very pale. And then you look for that way to walk away from the conversation that's not too awkward. That's terrible. Coming to Artsy and saying, my budget is $5,000 to $15,000. My interest is in something like X, Y, or Z. The size space on my wall, because as an art collector, you shouldn't be limited by the number of walls you have, but sometimes you have something in mind and you want to put it over the couch. Enter the dimensions and we will show you virtually every work of art in the world that meets your requirements. And then you can just enjoy the art. We take away the friction. We take away the pain points and we leave the fun, the joyful, the human aspects of from my last job, planning a wedding, from this job, finding the art that you're going to love and bring that art into your home. You know, it's interesting. We this is my this is my third podcast of the day, okay? And the the other two guys have so many similarities to you. You know, one one is the CEO of a billion dollar tech company and the other guy built a 7 billion dollar tech company and started a 2 billion dollar tech company. And there's so many themes that you just said that are just like, I just see them repeated in so many of the accomplished people we get to, I get to meet on the show. And like these ideas of removing friction, removing the annoying parts, taking on the hard yeah. part for the customer, making it easy, making it fast, helping people not feel dumb. I mean, that is a huge market. Helping people not feel them. That is a huge, huge magnet to anything yeah, that can be right. done out there, right? So tell me I, that. I think that's right. And, and I ahead. suspect, Jess, I suspect one of the things that's also sort of a consistent theme there is when you tell people the thing that you're going to change, they all tell you why, you why you can't change it. So in the art world five years ago, if you asked <laughs> anyone, will you put a price next to the painting and hang it on the internet? The answer just would have been no. No, we'll never do that. And it, it, it actually turns out that we will. We just have, we have to pursue that necessary change in the art world relentlessly. And you eventually get there. So I guess my next question is, I'm interested in this idea of, you know, you take, you take the art world and in many times, the same reason somebody buys a handbag or a fancy car is because they want to be seen with the handbag or the fancy car, right? And, and so there can be this aspect that should probably be addressed separately of like our own self-image and feeling like we're enough, whether we have a fancy car or not, which is probably a longer conversation, yeah. right? But you take something yeah. like art where it can very often, it, it can get, it can, people are maybe buying it for a sense of importance or a sense of feeling special, right? Or being involved in the art world or, or getting invited to the right parties or the right gallery openings or things like this. And I'm interested in how you've navigated exactly what you just talked about of putting a, putting a price tag and putting a price tag on it and putting it on the internet. And now all of a sudden people who felt like I get to be special because I'm in the inside club and I know how it really works. And here you go letting everybody in. Have you received any resistance or do you have any thoughts about other people who want to make something that's historically been a bit more closed, more open? You know, just I think for the for the most part, people who are in the art world are in the art world because they love art. And I think there has historically been a belief that the more exclusive you make it feel, the better it will be for the art world because you can charge premium prices. 
you can have control over an art, the arc of an artist's career. And there, look, there are elements that, that are completely true. Like it's, there's a, there's a reason great artists like Hindi Wiley are not just banging out a painting every 24 hours, right? The exclusivity and scarcity are, are absolutely factors in driving and driving success. So I wouldn't take that away. At the same time, what everyone in the art world learned, especially in this last year is, and even beyond the last year, but especially in this last year, is how important it is that we open up the aperture to more people and bringing more people into the art world. And what bringing more people into the art world makes possible is it makes makes it possible for more artists to continue their practice. It makes it possible for more galleries to stay in business and attend more art fairs and meet more collectors. And I think what folks really saw over the last year, the average gallery's share of revenue from online tripled in 2020, as you would expect, because much of the physical world was closed. The art world started to get really comfortable with connecting with collectors and new collectors through digital digital channels. And on top of all that, there's this there's this other this other thing, which is when you go to like if you go to an auction, fancy auction house, and you see people raising their paddles, you're not seeing new money. You're seeing old money. And as a business person, which anyone in the art world is there for the love of art, but they also they have this requirement that they have to be a business person to, to survive. And as a business person, when you look and your customers are not, they just don't look like fresh and new customers, you realize that that's a real long-term risk to your business. And you look more broadly at the art world, it's a real long-term risk to the art world. Over the next 10 years, millennials will acquire, will inherit $15 trillion. If you don't see those millennials in the room today, then when they inherit that money, they're not going to be in the room tomorrow. Unless we change the art world user experience to be the user experience that someone expects who's been swiping a phone or a tablet since they were 10 years old. And when you deliver that user experience, then again, you can take the friction out of the process. And what's left is all the wonderful stuff about the art world that really speaks for itself. Like the art world is only as small as it is today because of the friction. You take the friction away, and this is going to be a massive market. Think about it. More people every year in normal times go to a museum than go to a sporting event or a concert. We all love art, every single one of us. And so why don't more people have art hanging on their walls? That's I'm beating, I'm beating it to death here, Jess, but that's why we take the friction out of it and we've convinced the industry that this grows the market and they've seen it firsthand. They have seen the, the hundreds of thousands of collectors we brought them last year who they had never met before. That's a big deal. Yeah, no kidding. So for, mo- for folks not familiar, when you look at the lower prices, you know, talk about those 3,000 artists that there is a, you know, a secondary market that's alive and well. What's kind of the what's kind of the lower dollar amounts that, that those type of works start at? If uh, I, I to work my way up, if you start with artists who don't have gallery representation, it could be any price. You'd see them for a couple hundred dollars, as as you'd experienced yourself, Jess. If you have an artist who's represented by a gallery, usually you're starting in the low single digit thousands of dollars. Right, so the sort of the the cost of, of a decent handbag. You could have a painting by an artist who's in doing her first couple of shows and is on her way up in her career. Ga- primary market gallery represented art tends to be in that range of a few thousand dollars up to a hundred thousand dollars. It goes beyond that, but the but but the majority of the works, the majority, and I'd say that more than fifty percent of the GMB falls into that range. About half of the total dollar volume in the industry falls in that mid-market range, which you know, I think is generally defined as sub $250,000. When someone has a secondary market, the floor could still be a few thousand dollars. So you'll see, for example, once an artist becomes popular, they'll start to do prints and multiples, which is a great way to get, you know, an Alex Katz or a Jonas Wood piece might cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars for an original, you can get limited edition signed prints that are beautiful works in the primary or secondary market for thousands of dollars. And a lot of people do and really and, and, and really enjoy that. And as you noted with artists like Cause or Hearst or Coons, there's sort of a blurry line between, and Warhol, there's a blurry line sometimes between what's an original work. And, you know, there are, there are tons of balloon dogs out there, but they're in limited edition and they seem to be, the prices seem to be going up and up. So, which is a long way of saying you can be in an artist who has a secondary market for a price point that I imagine virtually everyone listening to your podcast can reach for. And you can be in the secondary market for a price point that everyone listening to your podcast can only dream of because these 
there are, you know, there was a sale two weeks ago for $92 million at, uh, at one of the larger auction houses. So there's a, there's a full range and there's, there's something for everybody. <laughs> That's great marketing. I like it. I like it. Maybe my go. next question is, you know, part of the reason we started this podcast, I think I told you before we started was I just wanted to create free advertising for child rescue association for our charity, you know? And I knew that coming out mm -hmm. with content that was interesting to me and my other entrepreneur friends would, would naturally be easy to get attention for. And then I could, talk to all these great guests about the charity, some who have become supporters and helpers and talk to the audience about it, stuff like this. Can you talk about the role of editorial and, and how you've approached content marketing? It's something, so first I'd say editorial and the way I think about it is different than content marketing. So content marketing, okay. you, sort of, you start with a commercial accident that you want to create and you go create a bunch of, and you go create a bunch of content just to drive, try to drive that commercial action. And as a as a consumer, you know that when you see it, right? You know when you just receive the email from the person who has a buy button on their site, who's written an article to get you to be into the things so you buy it. And it's still valuable. And it is not only valuable to the business, it's also valuable to the consumer. So that's content marketing, Jess. On the other side is editorial where you create separation. So just first I'd say, I see a difference between editorial and content marketing. Content marketing, the content is being created specifically to drive a transaction. It's wrapped around a certain product or service and it's packaged up and it's usually sent to the user in an email and you know it when you see it. Good editorial is there to engage an audience who might later want to take this commercial action, but the editorial is not tied to that commercial action. So at Artsy, we're creating editorial every day about what's going on in the art world, not just, hey, here's this thing that you might want to buy. And what that does is it draws an audience of people who are interested in and passionate about the art world. Now, once they're here, I hope they'll love the art world so much that they'll want to download my app, but they don't have to. You can just come and enjoy the editorial with no commercial commitment or commercial drivetrain, if you would, pushing the whole, the whole machine forward. I had the same experience when I was at, in my last role, when we were, we were building up the knot, the editorial was what, was what gave us permission to be in this space. The editorial is what drew the audience in, in the first place. And we answered every question you could possibly have about planning your wedding through editorial. And then we said, by the way, if you want free software that will take all the friction out of your wedding planning process, just download our app. And then once you did, we connected you to a DJ or a photographer or something at just the right moment. And then we got paid. We didn't get paid on the editorial, right? That wasn't where the business happened, but it is, it was the umbrella. It was the, the, the top, top of the funnel that brought everyone to us, built our brand, built up trust, brought us that audience. So I appreciate you making that separation so much. For me, the terminology, I don't call it editorial. I call it media marketing, okay? Where I feel like content marketing is like the 22-year-old intern who gets measured on how many Facebook posts they put out. Not, not the quality, not the results, but you know, like this, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's very much about activity rather than results about quantity. And, and like you said, it's highly, highly commercial where it's like thinly veiled sales pitches and stuff. Right. And, and I'm being slightly disparaging there. And it's because I feel like content marketing has so much more potential, but it's been watered down into that so often. Like that's not great content marketing. That's average content marketing that I'm talking about. Right. Where yeah. I look at like, I look at a Red Bull or I look at our client, Bloomberg. You know, we make this, we produce this uh, renewable energy podcast for them called Switched On. It's great, right? And they mm -hmm. never have to explain who Bloomberg is. Do you know what I mean? Like they, they have created stuff that's so good. They became the media. Do you know what I mean? And I just think mm -hmm. there's yeah. such leverage in holding ourselves to that level of like, we're not just trying to create something. If, if we held ourselves to the level of trying to create something that's so great, it competes with real media. That is that opportunity to like, anyways, to me, it feels like the opportunity to really win the customer. I mean, th this podcast is my attempt at it, right? I, I don't hide from the fact that I own a, a real estate investment fund or that we own a consulting firm or that, we, that we're a media company. But like the, sh the point of the show, people listen to the show, we have thousands of people listen to it five days a week, right? And it's primarily these stories about people who are doing innovative things like you. And it's my attempt to try to create something, you know, I don't claim we're, I don't claim this show is good enough to be on Bloomberg. Okay. But it's my attempt to be, to elevate at a level above one more fluffy social media post that doesn't really impact anybody. So Jess, I think one, one thing I'd add to that is there's also this virtual cycle 
that happens when you're creating the editorial and it brings people in. You use that as your, it, it gives you permission to offer people a great product at the other end of it. What comes of people using the great product at the other end of it tends to also be better editorial. So by way of example, my editorial team did a piece a couple of weeks ago about the hottest emerging artists right now. This is not us just saying, well, what we are hearing around town is these are the hottest emerging artists. We know the search queries for every artist, for anyone who's going online looking for artists. We know how many follows, we know how many inquiries, we know how many transactions on Artsy and off Artsy. And that, having access to that data, we wouldn't have that data if not for the huge audience that we built up through our editorial who come and use our app. You, them using that app creates this huge reservoir of data that can then be consumed again by that editorial team to create the best editorial in the space. And as you do that, the the flywheel continues to spin. So I just I, I I have found that 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 marriage, but if you would that that cohabitation between editorial and a great product people are going to love separate of the editorial is great. But if you try to squish them together, if you try to make it well, the editorial is just here to do content marketing, you ruin the med. I appreciate you bringing up that up so much because I think you know. What we're saying is not new. There's lots of business owners reading today that that have heard this before or know this. But sometimes there can be the struggle about like, yeah, what what should I make stuff about? You know, and we had the editor in chief of Media Post on the show, and you know, he doesn't have a huge distribution, but his distribution is the people who buy like six trillion dollars worth of ads a year, right? And I was asking him, okay, so you have a highly highly influential publication. How do you decide what goes in there or not? And he told me that his that his measuring stick was, is this content unmissable? Like, are the people who should be reading this, are they, are they any worse at their job because they don't know this? Or is this fluff? You know, or is this, is this just talking? Mm -hmm. Is this just entertainment? Or is there any information value to it? Right. And I think you bring up a really great principle there that I, I frankly should probably be asking myself more of like, yeah, what, what do we know that you can't get on Forbes or Fortune or Business Insider or TechCrunch? Like what, what data do we have that those other publications don't have access to? And you think about like, in general, we constantly try to be better than our competition when so often the real money is being different than our competition. And, you know, what story can we tell that only we can tell? It's probably a great mm -hmm. question to ask, huh? And we're... We're in a world now where if you're for ambitious people, you 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 play in such a competitive landscape, they're all just looking for an edge. And so if that's if you're a media buyer, you're looking for an edge for media post. If you're about to buy a bunch of art for your home and you are interested in buying art that might appreciate, wouldn't you wouldn't you want to know what artists have had their search inquiries increased by the most in the last 45 or 90 days? Like that is a that's an edge that you're not going to get otherwise. Listening to your podcast for somebody who wants to perform is an edge, right? Coming away from 30 or 40 minutes with you and having a clearer view on simplicity or prioritizing your work streams, et cetera, et cetera, that's an edge. And I, I think that increasingly, at least in the spaces in which we play, when your media is providing an edge to your to your audience, you're you're doing a service that that is that is indispensable. I love it. Well, you know, you you've accomplished a lot that other people haven't. This is one of my favorite questions. When you think about when you think about what you've done that others haven't, what do you, what do you think you've done different? You've been able to accomplish so much. Well, I hope everybody tells you the same thing, Jess, which is it's 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 more it's more good fortune than than anything else. But sort of within that within those constraints, there's probably a few things I've done differently. I've had a, in my career, I've I've had a long term plan that I've broken down into achievable activities every quarter, and have carved out time in my life and really leaned on my personal productivity to make sure I carve out time in my life to to achieve those things on the list. So early in my career, that was things like someday I'd like to be a CEO. Today, I'm an individual contributor. I don't even know how to manage people. I've never done it before. And so I needed to create time at that point in my career to study, like truly study management and leadership and be ready for when the, the moment presented itself. At some point in my career was if I'm going to be a CEO, I need to really lean into understanding how a P&L and a balance sheet and a cash flow statement work. And that can be self-taught. Or I cheated. I, I I fell in love with an investment banker, so she taught me. But being able to like <laughs> you will only like learn those things if you carve out the time in your life to learn them. And then my career, there were there were job changes, if you would, in my career at the moments when I had had the impact I wanted to have, and the learning was starting to flatten out, and I knew what things I needed to learn next in this journey, and I found something else where there was an impact I wanted to have that delivered those those lessons. So I think it's 
having a long-term career goal, breaking it down into things that I'll have to achieve to get there, and then carving out time and situations so that I have the chance to learn those things or experience those things and do those things. And at times it was just book learning. And at times it was taking a board seat on a nonprofit. And at times it was just lining up a bunch of coffees with a bunch of people who are experts in things that I didn't know my way around. At times it's sitting down and learning the basics of how to code from a piece of software online. But each of those was something that I, I felt needed to be done in order to be competent in my job. And we all think about this thing that we want to get from our career someday. I you know, I just as much thought about it as something where I, there's a responsibility that I'm going to be given and I want to be ready. And so carving out that time and putting in that hustle, I think has helped has, has helped me to be more effective in my, in my jobs than I might've been otherwise. I'm interested about that. You know, so many of us, there's, there's books written all this time about how easy it is for the important things to get pushed out by the urgent things. I'm interested in any strategies you have of protecting that time you've carved out for those things that are not a ringing telephone, but it's obviously very important to eventually getting where you're trying to get. Well, just as you know, with kids too, it's even even more so, right? When, once you once you have the responsibilities of a family and the unpredictability of small kids, carving out the time is it takes even more commitment. So I, I have found a couple of things are really important. First, if you're going to try to carve out time to do, do what is effectively extra work, you have to really, really want what's at the other side of that rainbow. So the first is having goals that are really important to you that you're willing to put in the sweat to achieve. Otherwise, it's just it's just too hard to get out of bed. And in my career, I've tried to work on things and with people that I really believe in, and it's it's kept me it's kept me. Secondly, I find that the elimination diet is just really important to what takes up time in your life. So I you know folks always. I make this recommendation to people that if they want to make a career change, they should carve out time in their life to learn the thing that they might want to be doing instead. And they all give me the speech about how they don't have any time, but they also like watched an entire series on Netflix this week. So you have the time. You're just choosing, you're just choosing different ways to use it. The average American spends two hours and 15 minutes a day on social media. It's a lot of time. That's a lot of time that you could have back. And Everyone, when I tell them that, they're like, yeah, but I don't. I'm like, all right, like delete Instagram from your phone and see what happens. See what happens with that time. The time you spend just surfing the web aimlessly, if you redirected that into something that's a, that's a project, You'd be shocked how much you get done. As you mentioned, I, I I wrote a book. It was a service I felt I I owed. I'd gotten so much great advice and read so many great books in my career that it made a help helped me and I wanted to pay it back. And I just calculated how long it takes to write and edit a page. And it turned out, I mean, for me, it was like an hour and a half. And so if you want to write a book, it's going to be about 300 pages. I needed 450 hours. And then I carved up the calendar until I had 450 hours laid out. It took 16 months. It was effectively Sunday mornings and a little bit sometimes of Saturdays when I needed it. And those hours were sacrosanct. They were early. I got up before anybody else. <laughs> I went to a separate physical location and I and I cranked and I did it and I like after you've done that for a month, it's not hard anymore because it's something it's something you do. Right? It's not hard for an Olympic swimmer to get up and swim. It's hard for you and me to get up and swim. So once you you know once you carve out three hours on a Sunday for five or six straight weeks it's not this horrible task anymore. Now you're just a writer and this is what you do. Yeah. You know, I know we didn't talk about your last company as much, but I'm interested. Do I, do I understand right that at about a $900 million valuation, they, you went back public off the New York Stock Exchange? Is that right? So the company was a publicly traded company when I arrived. The business had gone public in 1999. Uh, we arrived in 2013. The majority of the company's revenue streams were in decline. The stock price was down from its IPO price, you know, 10 or whatever years previous. But we saw this opportunity to build a two-sided marketplace on top of a beloved brand with, with a good amount of traffic that was a, a legacy online media company. And so the equity value was like $150 million when we arrived. When we went out, we sold it for just under a billion dollars. And and if you have maybe one extra takeaway from that, what what would you what advice would you give to others? Oh, we had a we just we had an amazing team. It's, it's, I worked with such great people. I just everyone on the first we brought in a, a new executive team and 
then they brought in their vice presidents and so on. And, you know, it took a little while, but once we had the crew together, it was an incredible, incredible group of people who just all believed in the mission and worked super hard and leaned into conflict and challenged each other, but also were kind and liked each other. And, and I looked forward to going to the office every day. And I, like my big achievement, what I did at that last company was get that team together and like stand back and watch the magic. It was really amazing. Well, congratulations on that. Listen, in addition to coming to the website, where's the best place people for people to connect with you is it on social LinkedIn or Twitter or where are you oh, these yeah. days? Go to, go to artsy and go, go to the app store and download the artsy app or you can visit us on, on, on artsy on the web. And then for me, I'm on Twitter. It's M at Twitter. It's M at Instagram. It's Mike Stibe on LinkedIn. It's something on clubhouse now where apparently we have to use that too. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not that hard to find. And if any of your listeners want some help finding some great art or anything else, I'm always happy to hear from folks. Very fun. Well, thanks for making time for this. All right. Justin, awesome to see you. Thank you, buddy.